I want to welcome everyone here to Gospel of Grace. If there are new people here today, I just want to let you know that at Gospel of Grace, we do preach verse by verse through the Bible. Bob Dway, our other preacher here, he's currently in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He just finished that up, and today I'll be in Matthew chapter 6. Now, one thing I want to point out is when Bob and I pick out our passage that we teach on, we try to limit it so that we don't have so many applications. One thing that we often do as well is we try to take a pericope, which is a section of Scripture that all goes together, and study it. And so today I'm warning you, this is a large pericope. But I think it all goes together, so it, it should be studied together. And so I'm going to have to go a little faster than normal. So let's get started. Now, dear ones, I want you to recall that as we got into Matthew chapter 6, oops, i got to get my goggles on too here, that uh, Jesus was instructing us how not to act and to think so that we would not become hypocrites like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now today, the focus is on prayer. He's going to be showing us that we must not pray in vain like the hypocrites do. Instead, we're going to learn from our Lord and Savior that we must be those who pray in faith. That you and I, because we belong through Christ to a great Savior, our God, we can come to God not as some blind and deaf deity that needs to be cajoled or to be manipulated in order to act on our behalf, but instead we can go to the true living and loving Father that longs to act on our behalf when we pray in faith. So today you and I really will learn what it means to pray in faith, not in vain. Now as we begin, the first four verses in this section we're covering today, Jesus tells us how not to pray before he tells us how we should pray. In particular, the first two verses we're looking at, verses 5 through 6, are about you and I not praying to be noticed by men, but to be only noticed by God. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when... But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Notice Jesus says here not to pray like the hypocrite. I want you to recall that the hypocrite, in fact, let me put my pointer up to make sure everyone sees it. Does everyone see the term hypocrite there? Remember, the hypocrite in Jesus' day was the play actor. And so the play actor would put on this very large mask, and they would go into the amphitheater pretending to be something that they truly were not. And the reason that's such a great metaphor here is because when it comes to the hypocrites of the scribes and the Pharisees, these spiritual pretenders really were different on the inside than they appeared to be on the outside. And one of the ways they demonstrated that was through their prayers that were designed not for God but men. Now, I want you to see here when Jesus has the issue with the hypocrites in prayer, it has nothing to do with their body position. And I say that because notice it says they love to stand and pray. From that, some Christians have falsely concluded that what Jesus is driving at is that you and I must be kneeling or prostrate or something like that when we pray. No, that's not Jesus' primary concern. Nor is his primary concern the geographical location of where these hypocrites are praying. Notice he says they pray in the synagogues on street and street corners. Now, you might falsely conclude, well, that means I can't pray 
in front of people or maybe in church. No, that's not Jesus' point. What really irks Jesus concerning these hypocrites is their motivation of their heart. Notice the reason they stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, notice in the box, is so that, there's the purpose statement, it's so that they may be seen by men. That's the motivation of their heart that bothers Jesus. Not their body position, not where they are geographically. They do what they do to be seen by men rather than by God. And so, dear ones, these hypocrites are real spiritual pretenders. The purpose of the hypocrite, then, in their prayer is not to seek the true God on the throne, but simply to be noticed by men and to have their reward. In fact, notice Jesus says they will have their reward in full, only that which comes from fellow man. But notice the implied contrast in verse 6. But you, the implication is you believers, the true believer, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, dear ones, notice here, Jesus advises that we go to an inner room. The term there for inner room, to maon, is a term that had to do with an inner room often used as a storeroom in an Israelite's home. It would be isolated probably from the outside wall and any windows so that it would not be easily accessible to maybe a burglar or sunlight. But the idea here is that we're going to go somewhere where we can't be seen. Now, from this, about 15 years ago, there was a Christian movement that kind of developed where people were building their prayer closets. I don't know if you remember that. If you listen to Christian radio, they were talking about this. Uh, Perhaps some of you have a Christian uh, prayer closet in your home. That's okay. But I want you to know that that's not the point. What Jesus is driving at is that we have a heart that doesn't want to be seen by men, but rather simply wants access to our Heavenly Father on the throne. That's his major point. Now, notice here, why should you and I want to be those who are noticed by God and not man? Well, notice he's the one who is in secret. In other words, our Heavenly Father, the reason why prayer is an expression of faith is because our Heavenly Father can't be seen. But through the evidence of the Scriptures, we know he's there. And so prayer is the exercise of faith where we want his attention and not the attention of man. Remember that term kruptos I mentioned last time, secret? Notice it's used here again. I mentioned that that was used in Romans 2.29. Remember of the true Jew who is one not outwardly, but kruptos, secretly or inwardly. And remember, what was the difference between the true Jew and the false Jew? The false Jew was like the hypocrite. They look like something on the outside. They have circumcision of the flesh, but they don't have circumcision of the heart. They don't have faith. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to be those who pray not to be seen by men, but who pray in faith to a heavenly Father who is really there. Now, in these next two verses, again, Jesus still telling us how not to pray. Now we learn that we are not to pray in vain repetitions as the pagans do. He continues, verses 7 through 8, he says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. 
Dear ones, notice Jesus does not want us to pray in what? Meaningless repetition. That term that you see in red, meaningless repetition, comes from the Greek term bata logeo. Bata logeo, use that five times at a dinner party, you own it. Right? That is your term. Bata logeo is what we call the hapax legomena. It only occurs once in the entire Bible. And so scholars kind of wrestle with how to translate that. I think here, the New American Standard Bible does a good job in rendering it meaningless repetition. Uh, The Net Bible renders it as babbling repetitiously. Now, we're given a further clue as to what Jesus means by it when he says, do not use the meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Now, as he talks about the Gentiles here, realize Jesus is not running down Gentiles and treating us as some second-class citizen. In fact, Two chapters from now, when we get to Matthew chapter 8, Jesus will marvel at the faith of a Gentile. Remember that Roman centurion, Jesus says, truly he had not seen such faith in all of Israel. And so the idea that Jesus is driving at, though, is that typically it was the Gentile that was without the revelation from God. And so a way of rendering Gentile here, the ethnikos, would be that of a pagan. In fact, that's how it's rendered, pagan, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Okay, so here's the point. This is how I would render it. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the pagans do. That's how I would think of this. Now, why would we not want to use vain repetitions and use the many words of the pagans? Well, in pagan religions, the pagans believed that they had to cajole or to manipulate their false deities in order to do something for them. So they would come up with mantras and phrases with many words. Why? Because they didn't have faith in the true God. They had to manipulate some false deity into doing something for them. But because you and I belong to the true Heavenly Father, we don't have to try to cajole Him or to manipulate Him, but rather He longs to act on our behalf. In fact, What's very interesting is notice in verse 8, Jesus says, so do not be like them. Why do you and I not have to heap up meaningless repetitions? Well, it's not based on our character. It's based on who God is. Notice the explanatory for. You don't have to speak like the pagan and heap up these mantras for your father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, we don't have to be like the pagan because the God that we serve isn't a blind and deaf deity, a false deity, but rather he is the true omniscient God, the God who knows all things. In fact, he knows what we need and he knows when we need it before we even ask. Now, this, of course, raises the question, if God is omniscient and he knows what we need beforehand, why should we pray at all? Well, there are three reasons why I think we are still called to pray. Number one, because we are commanded. We're commanded to pray. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, you remember, Paul says that you and I are to pray without ceasing. Of course, meaning that not that we pray 24-7, but that we never decide that there's a time in our life where we're going to take a vacation from prayer. I've had enough of that. I'm taking a month off. No more prayer for me. No, we are to be those who are devoted to prayer, never taking a season off. I remember the story, many of you probably have heard this before, from R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, a very famous theologian, recounts that when he was in seminary, he was taking a systematic class, and the professor was 
asking this very question. If God is omniscient and he knows all things, why should we pray? Well, R.C. Sproul said that as the question went out to the class, there was a long silence and it became very uncomfortable. Well, finally, sheepishly, just to end the silence, R.C. raises his hand. He says, perhaps because God commanded us to. And, of course, the professor, he said, had a heyday with that. He said, oh, yes, R.C., why? Simply because the Lord of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things, commanded you to do it. Why would that be a good reason to do it, right? So, dear ones, he commanded us to pray. That's why we should pray. The second reason why you and I should pray is because you and I do not live in a deterministic universe. God has promised to use means, the means of our prayers, to affect the way things go in our lives. He has taught us in the scriptures that he will act on our behalf. Think of it this way. We know that God alone saves, and yet he uses the foolishness of preaching to do so. Doesn't it say in Romans ten seventeen that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ? It doesn't happen through the a lightning bolt from heaven. It comes through the preaching of the word. In the same way, God has declared that he will use the prayers of his saints to change things. The third reason why you and I should pray is because prayer not only changes things, events, and circumstances, but it also changes us. And that's the point in the great prayer that Jesus is going to model to us, the Lord's Prayer, that you and I would rely upon him and learn to rely upon him rather than relying upon ourselves. One more thing I want to mention here. I think the irony is very deep when we consider that we are not to pray as the pagans do in meaningless repetition and through many words. It's very interesting. When I was a young man and I learned the Lord's Prayer, I violated that very principle. I took the beautiful Lord's Prayer and I started saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name of the kingdom come, they will be done. You start turning it into a mantra, not thinking about what I'm saying. And I want you to all think about that for just a moment. When we pray... We're not doing it simply to cajole. We are to pray in a relationship with the Father who's really there on the throne. There's a good scholar in the book of Matthew. His name is R. Kent Hughes. He used to be a former Catholic, and he recounts as he was a former Catholic, when he would pray the rosary beads, he said this. He said the rosary beads he used to pray in Catholicism contained 53 Hail Marys, six Our Fathers, and six Glory Bees. You know what that is? That's meaningless repetition. That's batologeo, babbling as a heathen. Now, I say that not because we have any animus towards Catholics. We love you, but we want you to see the error of your ways. That through faith alone and Christ alone, you can have a relationship with a father in which you don't have to act like a pagan and say 53 Hail Marys. Can you imagine if my son came to me? He has a relationship. My son will. If he came into the room, he looks at his watch. He actually has a watch. I never had one when I was that age. But he said 53 times, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad. I would want to check the boy for a fever, right? Something's wrong with the boy. Dear ones, that's not a relationship. That's a robot. Why would your heavenly father want the same? No, the Hail Marys and the turning even the Lord's Prayer into meaningless repetition that's for the pagan. Brothers and sisters, you and I have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, the Holy One of Israel. We can pray to Him as our Father. All right, now, 
I want to now turn to how we ought to pray, and I want to give you the structure as I see it with the Lord's Supper. I think we see six petitions in two parts in the Lord's Prayer. The first part is centered on who God is, His glory. So the first petition, notice the yours, hallowed be your name. The focus is on God, His greatness. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The focus is on God. The second part is about our needs. Notice the us and the ours. Petition one, give us this day our daily bread. Petition two in this section, give us our debts. Petition three, lead us not into temptation. So what's the big picture of the Lord's prayer? Well, I think we see it broadly in the two parts. First of all, part one, God is great. Part two, we are needy. That's it. God is great. We are weak and needy. We need him. And that's the kind of prayer that Jesus models for us. And so let's see now as Jesus switches from telling us what not to do in prayer to how we ought to pray. Matthew 6, 9 through 10, he says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dear ones, first of all, I want to mention that in my humble opinion, and someone can push back on this, I like to call this Jesus' model prayer. Uh, Technically, I think in John 17, we see Jesus' prayer. Remember, that's where he intercedes for us with the Father. He tells the Father, Father, I ask that you do not remove them from the world, but keep them from the evil one. So technically, I think this is Christ's model prayer for us. This is how we ought to pray. And notice he begins with honoring God. He begins by saying, our Father who is in heaven. Now, that phrase is something I like to call intimate transcendence. What do I mean by intimate transcendence? Well, think of the intimacy that we have here. We have our Father. The hour here in the plural is a reference to all believers. All believers can rightly call the God of heaven and earth their Father. And we do so not based on who we are, but based on the finished work of Jesus Christ through his imputed righteousness given to us, you and I have become adopted sons and daughters through him. That's how he becomes our father. In fact, turn your Bibles to Matthew eleven twenty-seven. I want you to see five chapters from now how Jesus is the one depicted as introducing us, as it were, to the father. Turn your Bibles to Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. As you're turning there, I'm going to get a drink. I'm a little dehydrated from some allergy medicine. I don't know about you, but my allergies are going crazy. So, Notice here in Matthew eleven twenty-seven. here's Jesus the Son. Listen to what he says. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The Son chooses to reveal to his elect the Father. You and I, as I'll show you in our application, have our access and introduction to the Father through the Son. And so that's how we belong to him. So that is this intimacy. He really is our Father. But added to that is this transcendence. Where is our Father? He is the one who is in heaven. That's the one we're praying to. 
So the transcendence accentuates the idea that he is far above. Yes, he's our father, but he's no earthly father. This is our heavenly father. In fact, you don't have to turn to it, but jot this down if you're a note taker. Psalm 33, 13 through 15. Psalm 33, 13 through 15 says, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. Our heavenly father Yes, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere, but his throne is being depicted in heaven. Now, where is heaven? We'll talk a little bit more about this. It's the new Jerusalem. And so, yes, this idea of heaven isn't some pie in the sky, just thought that things may get better someday, a sense of nirvana or a Shangri-La out there somewhere. No, the true heavenly father has his throne in a place that really exists, the new Jerusalem which is above. So now, notice here, tied to this intimate transcendency, we see that his name should be honored. Notice it says, hallowed be your name. The term hallowed there comes from the term hagiazo, which means to be made holy. Now, I want you to think about three aspects of holiness that I think are important here to get the full feeling of what's going on with hallowing God's name. First of all, we can use holy in the sense of sinless perfection in the Bible. In fact, one of the terms in Hebrew for sin, kathat, is a term that means to miss the mark. So whereas you and I as humans miss the mark of God's moral perfection, he, of course, never does. He hits moral bullseyes all the time. So one aspect of holiness is this idea of sinful perfection. The second idea of holiness that we often see in the Bible is the idea that God is other or he is different from his creation. Now, as I say that, that does not mean he cannot communicate with us. He can and he does through the scriptures. But what I mean by him being other or different is God alone is eternal and we are not. He is omniscient, we are not. He is omnipotent, we are not. He is a saity, meaning there is nothing outside of himself that he needs to exist. We don't have that. We are contingent beings. And so God is other. He is different. And therefore, he is holy. There's a third way, though, in which he is holy, which kind of crosses over into the idea of glory. And that is the idea that God is holy, meaning his name should be considered very weighty. There should be a gravitas to his name. Um, I've told this analogy before, but think about in the World War II, if General Patton would come and visit his troops in the Third Army, they would snap too. Why? Because there was a weightiness to him. If the President of the United States were to come into a room, and even if you don't like the policies of any particular president, there's a weightiness to the office. But how much more weighty is the God of heaven and earth? He is the weightiest. And so the idea here that we would pray that his name would be hallowed is the idea that in our own lives, in the lives of those around us, and one day encompassing the entire earth, God's name would be considered weighty. Do you know one of my favorite prayers in all of the Bible is where Daniel, he confesses the sins of Israel because they had brought disrepute upon God's name. Remember, this is all in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, Daniel becomes very excited because he knows the 70 years of captivity in Babylon were almost over. 
So he engages in a prayer that is one of the most beautiful in all the Bible. Listen to what consumes him. This is the last verse of the prayer. Daniel 9.19, one of my favorites. Daniel says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. What is Daniel consumed and concerned with? The name of God. What is the answer to that prayer? The greatest prophecy that we see probably in all of the Bible, the 70 weeks prophecy, which leads to what? Bob was talking about this in Sunday school. It ends in the kingdom of Christ. So notice, isn't it interesting, after the prayer that God's name would be revered and considered weighty, what's the next prayer? Your kingdom come. That is the means by which God's name will be considered weighty and of great renown forevermore, that his kingdom is going to come. By the way, when you and I pray that the kingdom would come, this, of course, infers and implies that the kingdom is not yet. You don't pray for something you already have. The, the, the kingdom, we want to come. And when does the kingdom come? It's when the king comes. Right now, as you and I sit here today, there is no address on earth for the kingdom of God. But there will be one day when the king comes because he will reign over the entire earth. So the kingdom will one day come. In fact, it's not just this kingdom, but notice he says also in prayer, your will be done. Now, when he says your will be done, what are we asking for here? Well, first of all, let's break God's will into two parts. First of all, his moral will and his decreative will, or we might call it his providential will. When we ask for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're wanting his moral will to permeate all things, that one day there'll be no more murder, There'll be no more immorality that violates the key teachings of the scriptures. But we're also praying that God's decreative will would be done. That's where he decrees certain things to come about, and they therefore necessarily do. Now, we know some of the things that God has decreed from our scriptures, but there are other things we don't. He hasn't revealed everything. But we are praying that one day both God's moral will and his decreative will will absolutely come about. And where is this going to happen? Notice Jesus says, on earth as it is in heaven. This passage is not about us praying so that when we die, we go to be with the Lord, although that's true. But that's not what the prayer is about. The prayer is about this kingdom coming to earth. That's what it's about. You know that, well, at least when I was a kid, I think it's probably the conception that most people have in their minds. We probably think that heaven is where you have these little wings on you and you're in some ethereal existence and you strum a harp and you just float around on a cloud, like kind of like the toilet paper commercials, right? Just floating around. Well, that's not the conception that we find in the scriptures. The scriptures say that, no, the kingdom is coming to earth. That's where it's going to be. The Lord is going to return. And then one day we're going to have a new heavens, a new earth. We have the eternal states and the new Jerusalem will come down. And so your playground as the believer in Jesus Christ will be a new heavens, a new earth, and the new Jerusalem. That's the kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what's to permeate our minds. You and I are to be consumed with praying and longing for the kingdom of Christ. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3, 2, do not focus your minds on things below, but on things above. 
Now, let's move on now to the second part where Jesus starts to address our human needs. Notice he says here, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. First of all, notice here, Jesus wants us to pray for our daily provision. We are to pray for our daily bread. Now, in history, there were some scholars who tried to turn the daily bread into something more spiritual. I know Augustine did that. I think Jerome did this as well, where they claim that the daily bread here is a reference to the scriptures. Why? Why did they do that? Well, because praying for just physical bread to eat didn't seem spiritual enough. But I want to assure you that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here, that you and I would pray for our basic daily needs, namely food. Now, again, that great scholar I'd mentioned earlier, this R. Kent Hughes, he said it this way, when you and I are praying, we are to pray for our needs, not our greeds. In other words, we don't just lift up every pie-in-the-sky thing that we would like and somehow to attain in this world. No, we are, in fact, to pray for our needs. That's what Jesus is modeling here. Notice here we have a daily provision. The provision of God's grace is not something that is stored up for eight months. So we just trust him once on Wednesday, and then we're good for eight months. No, we're to pray for our daily bread. Isn't it interesting in the Exodus when God is bringing the Israelites through the wilderness, you can read about this in Exodus 16, God gave them their manna daily. In fact, in Exodus 16, 4, he says, daily you're to receive it so that I may test you. So that's what I want you to... Um, also, by the way, I want to cite here Proverbs. This is some wisdom that's given to us from Solomon, I believe. And what I want you to see here in this text I'm about to read to you from Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9, is that, yes, you and I ought to pray for what we need, but you and I, again, should in some sense shirk the desire to have way more than we need. Listen to what Solomon said. Very insightful. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9. He said, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Notice the wisdom that Solomon had. If he was given too much, and by the way, Solomon ended up failing in this regard with all of his wives. But ironically, what he says here is true. If he has too much, then he doesn't need the Lord for his sustenance. In fact, he says, who is the Lord? Why do I need him? I seem to have everything I need. But if he doesn't have enough, he may what? Have to steal and profane the name of God. The idea is that we pray for our needs. That's what Jesus is revealing. Now, intrinsic to our basic needs is the forgiveness of sins. In fact, this is the most important need ultimately that we all have. Notice he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The term debts here has to do with a sinfulness. It is a moral debt. In fact, the term ophelema is used of a moral debt that you and I have incurred before God. And the idea is that we're to pray that we would be forgiven. By the way, we know this because the parallel passage in Luke eleven four uses the term hamartia, which is for sin. So clearly we're praying here not about financial debts, but about being forgiven our moral debts. And notice too that we are to be those who forgive 
those who have sinned against us. And I'll talk about that in the next slide. How irrational would it be to be those who have been forgiven much, but who don't forgive? Well, that would be an absurdity, and we're not to be that way. We're to pray that you and I also forgive others. Now, added to this, notice he says, and do not lead us into temptation. The term temptation there is the term perosmos, which means a testing. And the testing here that we talk about is used by God for our good. But remember, God is never the agent whose hands are involved with evil that tempts us directly. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think about James 1, 13 through 14, where James says, Let no one say when they are being tempted that they are being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but people are led away by their own lusts. So God is not the agent of our temptation, but he is seen as the one who can enable us to overcome, and he does use the testing providentially for our good. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's see what God does with temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Give you a moment to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Notice it says here that no temptation, Paul says, has overtaken you but such as common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Three points on this. Number one, God is sovereign and can keep us from temptation, but he is not the one who is the instrumental cause for temptation. Again, James 1, 13 through 14. Number two, God does allow his people to be tested, but it's intended for our good. That's what we see, by the way, in the wilderness. Why did the Israelites go through the wilderness? It was for their good. It was to tempt them and test them, even if they should fail. Number three, God does provide the way of escape, as we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's the point here. Jesus' model prayer is so that you and I would trust in God's power to overcome rather than relying upon pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we could overcome somehow by our own power. Now, added to this idea of leading us not in temptation, he says, but deliver us from what? From evil. In the Greek, there's actually a definite article here, the evil. And I think probably the better rendering is the evil one. It's not a reference just to generic evil, but Satan in particular. The idea is that we're praying to God that he would deliver us, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, from the one that is Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But, dear ones, what we learn in this prayer, whether it's our physical needs or whether it's our spiritual needs, we're learning from Jesus that God is powerful to save. That's what we're learning here. Now, one thing I want to point out at the end, the last clause I don't think is original to the Bible. And I know this sounds somewhat blasphemous, but let me read it to you. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I like that. But I have to say that the manuscript evidence that we have suggests that this was not original, that it was added by some later redactor. So before you form a pulpit committee and hoist me out for being a theological liberal and cutting things out of your Bible, 
What I'm trying to do is protect us from things that shouldn't be in the Bible. In fact, you know, added to that, many manuscripts later added after the amen there, it adds of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it was used in a later liturgy. So more than likely the original that was penned by the Apostle Matthew left off with delivers from the evil one. And then some later redactor added to the liturgy, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so I'm not going to teach on that portion of it again because I think we can make a good case that that's not truly Scripture. Okay, now, this last passage seems kind of out of place, but remember, if you get rid of that last clause, this connects directly to verse 12 where the issue was about forgiving. And that's why I think it should be read together. Plus, you have a four. So it's connected to the previous section. Four, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, I'm going to be talking more about forgiveness when we get to Matthew chapter 18. But the point here in Matthew 6, 14 through 15 is not that somehow you and I earn the right to be forgiven if we will do a work and forgive others. The idea that's being conveyed, though, is that if you are truly a believer in Christ and have been forgiven much, it is absolutely absurd that you in turn wouldn't forgive much. That's the idea that Jesus is driving at. And again, we'll talk more about this when we get to Matthew chapter 18. But if you and I have been forgiven, we have to be those who in turn are willing to forgive. Now, for the sake of time, let's get to some application points. I have two of them for you this morning. Number one, we must know that God doesn't hear the vain words of pagans, but he does hear his people because of Christ's finished work. The reason you and I don't have to use vain repetitions to try to cajole our God is because we belong to him. We belong to a true God who does hear all because of the work of Christ. The pagan doesn't. Number two, believers must desire and pray for the coming of Christ. I want to show you how this is all over the Bible, that it should be consuming in our lives this desire for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the first one. Today, Jesus taught us not to pray like the pagans. Remember, he referred to it as Gentiles, but we thought it's best rendered pagans, who delude themselves into thinking that they'll be heard by their false deities by their many words. We must know, first of all, that God does not hear the words of those who don't belong to him. That is the true God. Now, I want to lay out that case for you. First of all, Proverbs 28.9, jot that down. Proverbs 28.9, this is where Solomon says, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Okay, now here it could be a reference to a believer, but more than likely those who don't listen to the law are those who are outside of the camp of faith. Therefore, even their prayer is an abomination. That would be the idea. Think about this, John 9.31 in the New Testament. Remember, this is the man who was born blind ends up being healed, and it irks the leadership of Israel. Why? Because it's proof that Messiah is as he claims. Well, listen to the blind man's testimony. He says regarding Jesus, he says to the leadership of Israel, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Now, notice here when the blind man says that God does not hear sinners, don't take away from that to say, well, wait a minute, was the blind man confused that he didn't know that every person's a sinner. 
No, that's not the blind man's point. The blind man's point is he's using sinner in the narrow sense of those who don't belong to God. The true believer is the one who fears and does his will. So the idea then that the blind man is suggesting is God doesn't hear the prayers of the unbeliever. What's very interesting is there's a case of this in the Old Testament where we see pagans trying to cajole their deities and yet nothing happens. Do you remember that great showdown on Mount Carmel where Elijah the prophet has a showdown with the false prophets of Baal and the showdown like two opposing gunslingers in the Western, the one who wins is the God who answers by fire. And so Elijah, being a good and gracious man, lets them go first. You pray to your gods. So listen to what happens when they pray to their false deity, Baal. 1 Kings 18, 27 through 28. Again, we're on Mount Carmel. It says it came about at noon. It's high noon. It is like a Western. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Notice they were trying to cajole their deity. They're trying to manipulate him, and we scoff at it. But is this really any different than the 53 Hail Marys on the rosary beads? Is it any different than me as a young man, says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name of the kingdom come? No. Trying to cajole the deity because you don't really belong to him. Brothers and sisters, what this shows us is that these pagans have a false God that can't answer and the true God who won't hear because they don't belong to him. He will not listen. So that's what I want to show you is you and I, you and I have the most extraordinary benefit ever given to mankind. First of all, the benefit of having salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and the absolute assurance of everlasting life. But added to that great benefit is you and I can have access now to our Heavenly Father. But I want you to see that it's only because of the finished work of Christ that we have the access to pray as Christ has commanded us today. I want you to see this very freshly from Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, notice here Paul begins with a therefore, and he has concluded. Remember, the first four chapters of Romans were saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works of the law. And so he's just proven that. So what are the implications of being justified by faith? First of all, we have peace. Peace here is the totality of what that term means. Ultimately, that we're saved from the wrath of God, that we have everlasting life. That's ultimately, if you don't have everlasting life and are spared from the wrath of God, you don't have ultimate peace. So that's first and foremost. But notice added to that, we also, it says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction. Notice the term for obtaining this introduction comes from prosagoge. It's one term in the Greek, and it literally means to have the right or opportunity to address someone, typically someone of a higher rank. So let's say you're living in Minnesota here and you're upset with your taxes, but someone gets you a hearing with a senator or a state representative. That introduction 
would be the idea of prosagoge. That all of a sudden you who really have no power, politically speaking, now you have access to them. And so here the New American Standard Bible renders prosagoge obtained our introduction. I like that. But the ESV renders it access. And that's exactly the issue. That through what Christ did, you now have, have access to the throne room. An access that the pagan does not. An access that the pagans cannot conjure up through their meaningless babble and their vain repetition. You now have that, brothers and sisters. Christ earned that for you. Dear ones, there has never been, apart from the forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life, a greater benefit that you have ever been given. The greatest benefit that you have ever been given, apart from the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, is access to the throne of grace. Perhaps there are some here today or some that are listening, and you look at your culture in America today, and you say, what benefit is there in being a, a citizen anymore? Illegal immigrants come flooding across the border. You have to pay for it. The leadership doesn't listen to you, and it feels like there's not much benefit in being an American anymore. Perhaps you're in a job where the benefits aren't so good, and you're struggling to make ends meet. I have to say to you that if you're a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the greatest benefits package that's ever been given. Everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, access to your Heavenly Father. That is your privilege and your benefit of being in Christ. Now, I want you to see one more time this great privilege that we have from 1 John. Do you remember in 1 John 5.13, John wants us to know the assurance that we as believers can have. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. But he doesn't end there. Right after that, he talks about the confidence that we can have because of this access that we just read about. 1 John 5, 14 through 15, he says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked him or asked from him. And dear ones, notice here in blue, John is very clear. If we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. Now, what does it mean to ask according to his will? Again, let's think of will in two parts. The will of God in his moral will and in his decreative will. That is the will that he brings about providentially in history. Well, the idea, of course, let's start with moral will. If you and I pray in a way that is against God's moral will, he is not going to answer that in the affirmative. If, if you pray to be a better bank robber, you can bet that that's a prayer that God isn't going to honor. Are, are you with me? I, I pray, Lord, that I could be a little bit more sneaky with my taxes. And, you know, I mean, that's the kind of prayer that the Lord isn't going to answer, that we have to be upright and forthright and moral. The, the second, though, is God's decreative will. That is, God will bring about certain things in history. Some of them are revealed in Scripture through prophecy, but some of them are not. And so sometimes we don't know what God is going to do, but yet we can still go to his throne of grace and we can pray, and he can say three things. He can say yes, he can say wait, or he can say as he did to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, no, my grace is sufficient for you. But one thing that we do know 
is because we belong to the great, magnificent, loving, and living Heavenly Father on the throne that when we go before him, he longs to act and he will, as it says in Romans 8, 28, cause all things to work for the good for those who love him who are calling according to his purpose. He will do that for you. But he is going to get you to glory and make you conform to the image of his son. But brothers and sisters, you and I have the privilege of being heard by our father. Now, let's go to our final point, and that is we should be those who are consumed with praying for and longing for the coming of Christ's kingdom. I want to address a couple of sayings in Christendom. I like how Bob distinguishes the true Christian church from Christendom. In Christendom, there's a couple of sayings that I want to take issue with. One is, maybe some of you have heard this. How many of you have ever heard the saying, if you're going to give the gospel, do it, and even if you have to, use words? Or it'll be something like, um, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Are you with me? You've all heard that. And it sounds very pious. The idea is that actions speak louder than words. The irony of that is that's not biblical. Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? Our good works? No, hearing by the word of Christ. In the book of Philippians, doesn't Paul rejoice when the gospel was even preached with impure motives? Why? Because the power is in God's word. Now, I mentioned that saying because you can see the slang, excuse me, the saying sounds very pious, but it's not biblical. There's another saying that I would claim is not biblical, and that is you've heard people say, oh, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. You've heard that. Dear ones, what you and I learn today in Christ's model prayer is that we should be heavenly minded, that we should be consumed about the coming of Christ. And we see it not just here in the Lord's model prayer. We see it all over the scriptures. Notice the last words here in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, literally cursed of hell, anathema. And then he says, maranatha. Maranatha that you see in blue comes right from the Aramaic. Remember, this is a Greek text that we're looking at. And all of a sudden, right from the Aramaic, this word sits out like a sore thumb, Maranatha. Why? Because it was a buzzword of the early apostolic church. So convinced and consumed were they with the imminent return of Christ, it became a buzzword, Maranatha, come Lord. Does that sound like a people who are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good? Yes, they are heavenly minded, but I would say that that's why they were the ones who did good. Dear ones, think about this. It's all over the scriptures. Let me read to you a bunch of passages where you and I are to eagerly await the coming of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 7. I want this to crescendo on you. It says, We eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 23, we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. When does that happen? At the coming of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, We are looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of, our glory, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28 says that we are waiting eagerly for him. Hebrews 10.13, We are waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Jude 21, we are waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Over and over in the scriptures, you and I are called to what? Eagerly wait. Eagerly wait and long and pray for the coming of Christ. 
Dear ones, this is why the Apostle Paul again said in Colossians 3, 2, that we have to focus our minds on things above, not on the things on the earth. I want you to think about the very last passage in our Bible, the very end of it, Revelation twenty two twenty. At the very end of the book of Revelation, notice John comments. He says, he who testifies to these things says, now here's Jesus' words, yes, I'm coming quickly. Now stop there. Notice the term quickly. Tacus, your adverb there. That very term is used in Revelation 1.1 for the things that are coming soon. The whole book of Revelation is built on the idea of imminency, that this is at hand. And notice, what does John conclude then? He says, come, Lord Jesus. That's the prayer. That's the prayer that should be on our heart. Brothers and sisters, the truth of it is not that you and I can be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. The truth of it is that we can be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Jesus has given you a model today in prayer that you should long and pray for the coming of Christ. Let us, therefore, brothers and sisters, not think and pray like the pagans do. We think that they'll be heard for their many words and they pray in vain. Let us be those who pray as the Lord Jesus has commanded us to, longing for the coming of the kingdom, bringing all our needs before him. Let us be those who don't pray in vain. Let us be those who pray to a heavenly Father in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the greatness and the goodness that you have for us in this coming glorious kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God that we can approach at the throne of grace and we can find help in our time of need. We know that we have this access only through the finished work of your Son. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your kingdom would come and that your name would be given great renown over the entire world. As it says in Zechariah 14, that all the nations would come and they would worship you. And that one day, as it says in Isaiah, the nations would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. No longer would they learn war. And that you would get all the glory for that, Heavenly Father, we pray for this. We also pray in the weeks and months ahead, in the years, as long as we have, as long as you tarry, that you would enable us to overcome and persevere, all for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you. I hope you have a wonderful week.